Our scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on page 573, the black Bible in front of you, 573. As you're turning there, in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, we read about the ending of the time of the ten plagues. After the ten plagues had come upon Egypt, Pharaoh finally let the children of Israel go releasing them from the bondage that they experienced for hundreds of years. However, not long after, Pharaoh changed his mind and sent out his army to bring them back. At this point, uh, the people of Israel were getting closer and closer to the Red Sea, and they were basically blocked in. Behind them were the Egyptians, and in front of them was the Red Sea. They had nowhere to go. They believed that they would be killed. But in Exodus chapter 14, Moses says this, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you, only, you have only to be silent. Now, we know the rest of that story, and God did save the children of Israel by dividing the waters of the sea, the sea that seemed unable to get around. God made a way through the waters. He parted those waters in order that the people would walk through on dry ground, escaping the Egyptian army. That army, we know, followed them into the sea, and once The the Jewish people were out. God released the waters to cover the army so that no one survived. Later in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is exhorting Israel by reminding them something about who God is. He writes these words in Deuteronomy chapter 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribes. 
He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Like Israel... When our knowledge of and faith in who God is wanes, when that wanes, so too does our confidence in our hope. Last week, Pastor Chris began our Advent series by looking at Isaiah's prophecy here in chapter 9. This prophecy was of a child that would be born, of a son who would be given. Isaiah was writing at a time of spiritual darkness as God's judgment was upon the children of Israel for their unbelief. Now back in the book of Isaiah, if you look at verses 21 and 22 of chapter 8, just before chapter 9, the passage that we'll look at this morning, if you just look right back above that to verse 21, chapter 8, verse 21, We read these words. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuous against the king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness." That's pretty bad. That's a bad, that's a bad scenario. Like that, 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 that's a bad day. This is the judgment of God upon his own people. And we, we understand how it came. It came through an invasion from the army of Assyria. This was a time of both physical and spiritual gloom. And yet in the midst of that, we read chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, which actually offers hope in the midst of the despair. It actually offers hope in this darkness that there would be a light that would come, a light that would dawn. It was a prophecy. And prophecies are talking about something yet future, we know. And that is exactly what Isaiah was doing in chapter 9 when we read verses 1 through 3, follow along. But there will be no gloom for her, talking about Israel, who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought her into contempt into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And in the later time, he, made, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness, that's Israel, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So there is this this, this sense of, of gloom, of anguish, of darkness that's turning to joy. That's what we're seeing here. It's turning to joy as this light is shining upon them or has shone upon them. 
as we come to the New Testament, the writer of Matthew, Matthew, rightly applies this prophecy to Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 12, Matthew writes, it says, Now when he, that's talking about Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, that's John the Baptist, he withdrew from Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went up, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Just what we read. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 9, verses uh, 1, verse 1, might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. The land of Zebulun, and the, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in that region, the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Isaiah goes on in verses 4 through 6 to give three reasons why why there's joy. The joy is coming, the light is dawning, and why is there joy? And we see it in the the ESV with the word for. You look at your Bible, look at verse 4, it begins with the word for, verse 5 begins with the word for, and verse 6 begins with the word for. Why is there joy? For or because, because of these three things. The first is in verse 4. For the yoke of his burden in the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. There's freedom. What is coming is freedom, is what Isaiah is saying. That there's freedom from this bondage. There's freedom from this oppression. Eventually, the Lord would free his people from their enemies. In his words, as on the day of Midian. And what does that mean? As on the day of Midian. That takes us back earlier in the Old Testament to a story in the book of Genesis, Judges, verses chapter 6 and 7. And that's the story of a man named Gideon, who with a divinely allotted small army had a great victory over their enemies. Just like that deliverance, Isaiah is saying. Just like that, the, the day of Midian. The day of that victory, the day of that freedom, there is coming freedom once again. Secondly, verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior of battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood, what will happen? Will be burned as fuel for the fire. There's victory coming. There's victory coming over the enemy, but that's not all. Finally, we read these words again in verses 6 and 7. For or because, why the joy? Because for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. There was joy to be had. There was joy that was coming because the light has dawned, because the Redeemer had come, because the child was born, because the Son was given. In a different translation of verse 6, it reads this, For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. For us, 
and to us. The reason for the hope, the reason that there can be joy, Isaiah is saying, is there is one who would come to be for us what we needed. Be for the, the, the people of Israel what they needed. But who would this child be? Who would this son be? Who would this gift be? Who would this sign be? Well, Isaiah identifies him with four titles. We see it in verse 6. And his name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He gives four titles, four divine titles, describing a king. No other king of Israel could make such claims as these. No other king, not even David, could claim to be a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, or prince of peace. This righteous ruler, this was a righteous ruler, whose the government would be upon his shoulders, would rest upon him. There was no one else like him. Last week, Pastor Chris preached about the, the wonderful counselor and how in Jesus we see this wisdom. Today, we want to look how, at how Jesus is the mighty God, the mighty God who is able to save. That's the name. He shall be called what? The mighty God. Here, first, we see that this title leaves no room for doubting that Isaiah was speaking about a divine king, a deity. This was not a human king. When Isaiah is talking about this one who would come, this son who would be given, he could not have been talking about a human. Mighty God. The word here is, is the general word for God that we find in the Hebrew language. It's the word that where we get the word El, E-L. We, we hear it in, in, in a term like, or a a name like Elohim, which is a, a, another word for, for God in Genesis 1. Or another name for God that we, you, you might have heard of, El Shaddai, which means all-sufficient God. We see that in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. Or a name like El Hanora, which means awesome God in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 32. But we also see it in another name that Isaiah uses. If you're in the, the Pew Bible, you just look back one page to chapter 7, verse 14. It's page 572, on the left-hand side of the page. Verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. What's the sign? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now in Emmanuel, we see that the, the ending, that the, the suffix is the E-L. So actually, uh, we often refer to Emmanuel as God with us, but the literal would be with us God, is how Emmanuel would actually be literally translated or understood. God with us. Here in verse 6, we see another name for God. And this one is called El Gabor, Mighty God, El this is in contrast with this word God. It's in contrast with the word man. Later in Isaiah chapter 31, verse 3, it reads like this. The Egyptians are man, or Adam, Adam, and not God, El. So Isaiah is, is making a very important distinction about who this son would be, what he would be called. Mighty God, he's clearly 
telling us that he is both human, he's a child, being born, and God, deity. He is the God-man. He is God in the flesh, which John 1 verse 14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, not only is he God, but Isaiah uses a modifier in this title to describe the one who is God. And he calls him mighty God. Not just God, but mighty God. Now, as we look through the Bible, we actually find that this word, mighty, is used to describe God himself on a number of occasions. Just in the next chapter, chapter 10, verse 21, Isaiah says this, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. We, look, we can look at Psalm chapter 24, verse 8, or Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 18, or Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, all telling us that God himself is mighty. God himself is mighty. To say mighty is to say that he is great, that, that he is powerful, that, that he is strong, that, that he is able. This child, this child that would be born, born of a virgin, would be called the mighty God. Isaiah lists four titles here. And we might wonder why he chose those four titles. Could he have chose other titles? Could he have said other things about this son? Well, probably he could have said other things about this son. But why would he say the things that he said? Because they speak to something about the prophecy that he was giving. They speak to something about what the people of God needed to know about this son. Now remember the immediate context of the judgment of God against the people of God. An army invading them. This is not a good time. This is not a good time to, to be a, a a person uh, of, of God's family in the sense that you're under judgment. Isaiah was prophesying not just that a child would be born, not just of a son, not even just of a king, but a powerful deity would come, would come to rescue, would come to establish a kingdom. And what more could these Israelites want but a ruler who would come to, to rightly rule over them Rightly take care of the oppression that they had suffered. The mighty God is what they needed. They needed him for deliverance. They needed him for, for a righteous, right government. But we also know that this prophecy was not fulfilled in the time of these people. When Isaiah makes this prophecy, it didn't come true yet. It didn't come true in their lifetime. They needed to hear the hope of what was yet to come. Imagine, though, being a Jewish person who lived hundreds of years later who heard this prophecy. Hundreds of years later, maybe during the years of 5 or 4 BC, and your only experience is the silence of God. You're, you're, a, you're a child of Israel, but you've never heard a prophet speak. God has been silent since the prophet in the scriptures, Malachi, what are you supposed to, to do? What are you supposed to believe? This prophecy of Isaiah, this ancient prophecy was hopeful. But in your lifetime then, 
At the fullness of time, a baby would be born, which took place, the gospel tells us in Matthew chapter 1, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That's Isaiah. And what did he prophesy in chapter 7? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This prophecy was both for those who were, were alive at the time. It was for those who would come and suffer through a period of silence, but it's not just for them. It's for you and me too. Why is it? Why is it such good news for us that God is, that Jesus is the mighty God? One of the reasons is, is because life is not as it should be. You know that. You've experienced life not being as it should be. You've experienced the brokenness that sin has brought into this world. You've experienced how sin has separated you from God. You've, you've experienced how sin has separated you from one another. You know that you are weak. You know that you are unable to save yourself. So the prophecy here, the promise here, is that there is one who's coming who can. Who can do what you cannot do. Who can do what the Israelites could not do against the Assyrians. Deliver. He is the deliverer. But your enemy isn't the Assyrians, is it? My enemy is not the Assyrians. So what good is a prophecy of this? Well, because it's not just about the Assyrians, is it? It's about a deliverance of, from a greater enemy than an army of Assyrians. Jesus came to deliver you from the penalty, from the power, and from the presence of sin. Jesus came to be the God-man, the mighty God, the, the, the ruler, the, the powerful ruler who comes to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to be the mighty God. Consider that for a moment. You've heard the, these titles many times. For some of you, you've sat in church and you've heard people preach on Isaiah chapter 6. I just received a, a Christmas card in the mail. It, it, it's right on the card. Like we, we, This is all around us, these titles. But consider what it means that Jesus is the mighty God. Let it inform your mind. Let it inform you about your view of Jesus. Let it inform your, your view of Jesus' work in the world. And in your life, he is a mighty God. He is able, he is great, he is powerful. Let it inform your understanding of salvation and your need for his forgiveness. The only way forgiveness works is if someone pays the penalty of your sin in order to, to gain such forgiveness. And yet this one did, he is able to do it. Let the mighty God inform your troubles and your temptations to sin. 
Jesus came to be the mighty God. He is able to do more than we can imagine. Let it inform your obedience to his word. This is the mighty God. This isn't some optional deity that's calling you to obedience. This is God himself. Let the mighty God inform your anxieties about life. I've heard it said that anxiety is, is worrying about the future and depression is, is looking at the past. Let the mighty God inform your anxieties. Let him, let him inform your, your worries about life, about your family, about your finances, about this world that might feel out of control. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says, Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Or there's another paraphrase or translation that says, Cast all your anxieties on him, for you are his personal concern. He cares about what you care about. The mighty God is actually can do something about it too. Not always changing your circumstance but being with you in the circumstance. Let this mighty God inform the way you look at your trials and your hardships and your griefs and your fears and all the things you can't control, which is basically everything. But there is one and only one who controls it all. An all-powerful ruler, the mighty God, who in the beginning was with God and who was God. Jesus is the mighty God. Timothy Keller writes, If the baby born at Christmas is the mighty God, then you must serve him completely. This is not just any baby. We have some old friends from our church that are here today. Olivia Dean, former dean. She has a two-month-old baby here today. I'm sure the baby is beautiful. Jesus is not a normal baby. It's not just a baby. He's not just a son. He's not even just a king. He is God become man, God in the flesh. And if that's who this God is, then it changes everything. Christmas isn't just a feel-good story. It isn't just the birth of 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 a new life. It's a fundamental change in all of life. Let that reality inform the way you view life the way you view Jesus, the way you view his Father, the way you view the Spirit, the way you view the Word. Jesus is the mighty God. Isaiah's prophecy, as we understand prophecy to be, was future-oriented. And so when Isaiah is prophesying of, of what is yet to come, we know that it hadn't happened at that time. We read a little further into the book of Isaiah in chapter 37, and we find that God defeats the Assyrians and delivers the people of God. We might say that that's somewhat of a fulfillment 
of the prophecy. But it's not a full fulfillment of the prophecy, certainly because the, the son had not come, that the child had not been born. So Isaiah's prophecy was looking further down the road, further down the road to an ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. It is Jesus who is the son born, the, the child born, and the son who is given, the sign of God's presence, Emmanuel. But even that is not the fullness of the entire prophecy. Because Isaiah says that, that he will have a government upon his shoulders. In the increase of his government, then, then there'll, there'll be peace. Well, that's not happened. <laughs> right? Uh, you, you know that. I know that. That didn't happen during Isaiah's time. It didn't happen during Jesus' time. So Isaiah was, was actually looking forward not only to the birth, which began the fulfillment of the prophecy, but he's actually looking even further to the second coming of Jesus when his kingdom, the kingdom of God, would be established. When Jesus would sit on the throne of David and rule and reign once and for all and over all. Isaiah is looking to a, a, a greater future than we could even know today. Isaiah was prophesying of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who the apostle John refers to in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He is that today. But there's a day coming when he will rule and reign over all things. And that day is not yet here. Jesus is king waiting to come. He's not waiting to be king to come. He is waiting to come as king. Jesus is the mighty God. He is the righteous ruler. He is the all-powerful king. And if we see anything at Christmas, if we see anything at Christmas, it's the mighty God. It's the God who is able. It's the God who does the impossible. It's the God who miraculously, miraculously came to do what we could not do. We could not live the perfect life. We could not fulfill the law. We could not save ourselves. So he came to do what we could not do. He came to do what no one else could do either that no one else would do for us, and that is to die our death. The mighty God came to save, and he did it by dying our death that we might have life in and through him. The mighty God came to save. He is a mighty God. Understand this this morning. Jesus did not come to fix all your problems today. It's not why he came. He didn't come to give you a, a happy life or your, quote unquote, best life now. He didn't come for that. He came for something greater. Something greater than that. He came to destroy the works of the devil. 
He came to free the captives. He came to rescue sinners. He came to draw people to himself and cause them to become like him, to give them faith to believe. He came to show grace and love and through his kindness lead us to repentance. That's why he came. Our greatest hope is not in an imaginary, fictitious, fairy tale of a happy life. There are some today that that want a kingdom. They want a kingdom now, but they want it without the king. All the emphasis on health, all the emphasis on preservation of life, and God loves life. But if you think we're going to build a kingdom here through more medicine or better health, you're missing what the kingdom is actually about. The kingdom is more than that. It's better than that. And we can't have the kingdom without King Jesus, without the mighty God. It's only in knowing this king who is the mighty God as Savior and Lord that you can experience hope, the hope that he brings, and one day live in the kingdom that he will reign over. The hope was promised by Isaiah. It had arrived in the birth of Jesus. If you know this Jesus, if you know Jesus as the mighty God, then rejoice this Advent season. This is cause for great rejoicing for you and me. As we live with confidence in hope, and hope as we remember that he will come again as we long for his soon return. But if you're with us this morning and you don't know this Jesus, You, you, you hear all of this talk about Jesus. You may know of Jesus, but you do not know Jesus. Hear Isaiah's words again and hear the hope. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He came to us. He came for us. So I ask you, will you come to him? Will you see him today as the savior that you need? Will you see this all-powerful ruler who is mighty to save as the savior you need? Will you come to him in repentance and faith? And if you do, you can know the hope that Christmas really brings in the joy of knowing him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. The son who would be given, the child who would be born. Thank you for this one who is our wonderful counselor, who is the mighty God, who is an everlasting father and the prince of peace. I pray today that the truths of who Jesus is would inform the way we live this week. That knowing that Jesus is the God of the impossible, that Jesus is powerful, that Jesus is able, would give us confidence this week no matter what we experience, to know that that's our God, 
That's our Savior. But for the one that's with us today, that doesn't know that hope, that does not have that confidence, God, I pray that you would impress upon them this morning the good news of Jesus. That Jesus came for us and he came to us to do what we so desperately needed. The salvation of our souls. The rescue from the wrath of God against our sin of which we all participate. And save for Jesus will be condemned for. So God, even now, would you impress upon us, would you convict us to see Jesus as the Savior we need today. What a great day. No better day than today to come to him, to come to this mighty God, confessing our sins and crying out for his salvation by faith alone. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Oh God, you